Are you passionate about making a difference through design? Join us at the Human Centered Design Network's Circle, a new private community for change makers just like you. Connect with like minded professionals, gain exclusive rights to monthly learning opportunities, and lead the change in human centered design. For more information, see thisishcd.com. Now, let's get back into that episode. Welcome to another episode of Bringing Design Closer. My name is Jerry Scullion and I'm a service designer and founder of This Is HCD and CEO of ThisIsDoing.com, where we provide live online design and innovation classes, providing training for service designers, design researchers, product managers, user experience designers, content designers, and much, much more. Today in the show, we have Dr. Lucretia Berry, co-founder of Brownicity, an organization based in the US that is dedicated to advocacy and education and support for racial healing and anti-racism. I absolutely adored their hero statement on their website when I first saw it. It says, many hues, one humanity. So I was extremely excited to finally get to speak to Lucretia herself. We speak about racism in depth, where it comes from and what privilege looks like. And also discuss why African-American children are five times more likely to drown in US swimming pools. A fact that when I say it again, still blows my mind. Lucretia was one of my favourite guests and this is HCD to date. And special thanks has to go out to Pinar Gavench who was on the show recently and connected us together. It's a big topic, so let's get straight into it. Dr. Lucretia Berry, a very warm welcome to Bringing Design Closer. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me, Jerry. How are you? I am so excited. I'm not I'm not joking. I'm so excited. I've watched your TED Talk numerous times at this stage, and I've seen it in the calendar for a couple of months, and I'm like, I cannot wait to speak to this person. <laughs> so I'm so excited to finally be here speaking with you. But for our listeners who don't know who Dr. Lucretia Berry is, maybe tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do. Sure. So I am originally from North Carolina, grew up in the South, which is quite meaningful to the work that I do. And let's see. And then I grew up and married a white guy, Nathan, (laughs) from Midwest. Again, it is relevant to the story and the we do. And when we got married, we both have always been pretty conscious and intentional Mm. and having, we actually met doing work around like racial healing through a church back before it became popular. So that would have been the late nineties and we developed a deep friendship and then later got married and over time people loved having conversations with us about race and asking us lots of questions and being informed us, mm. which eventually brought us to do to to our current platform, which is an education um, centered and an education driven agency for uh, racial healing and anti-racism called Brownicity. <laughs> and do you want to give a shout out to the title on that website because it's what. When I first saw it, I, I went, yes. Yeah, our tagline is many hues, one humanity. 
Yeah, it's absolutely brilliant. I'm gonna, I'm gonna definitely gonna buy one of those T-shirts that has that. Please go to the website and buy a T-shirt. Everybody, only if you sign it. (laughs) I'm gonna buy one later on. But tell us, like Brownicity, you mentioned about educating, like to to kind of reduce the impacts and reduce racism and uh, anti-racism. Where did this come from? Like, what, what were you seeing, and what problems does it solve? We, we know we know the problem that it solves, but yeah. what's your personal experience in that? Well, okay, so around education, our institutions of education have done mm. us a disservice here in in our, our nation, specifically around race and racism. And so, what I have observed and what we found, and is that people are either misinformed or disinformed or completely uninformed around our our nation's patterns of creating racist policies mm. and acting racist practices and even our racist behavior. And in our public school curriculum, we essentially don't learn about those things. Like we learn around it and, you know, we learn a lot of history, but as students or learners kind of growing up in the public education, we are, we don't really get this informed knowledge perspective about how like the construct and ideology of race and racism is so much a part of our nation's history. So there's this deficit there. And then, so now you have adults trying to either talk about the problems or address the problems. And they really, we really haven't been informed in the same way that, for example, you would be informed about any complex issue. Just think about, I often compare it to math, right? And so Mm. math is very complex or can be very complex. And you wouldn't come to like solve a math problem, you know, (laughs) with your opinions, you know, and with your your fear, you, you get equipped to talk about math or engage in math from a very early age. And we learn basic math. And then as we get older, we get to evolve into more complex problem solving and formulas and things mm-hmm. like that. And then, you know, by the time we're in high school, we maybe can do algebra or calculus or geometry. And so I liken race and racism to that and that it's complex and nuanced, but we aren't systematically and, and as a whole country and culture kind of given the tools to be able to address to, to speak yeah, or even to analyze it and in a, a mature yeah. way. I mean, what can be seen here is like there's there are whole Rosa Parks piece in was it the 60s mm-hmm. in America, and they go, kind of, okay, it's all finished now. We're going to make things yeah. better, but the system hasn't really caught up and it hasn't really shifted beyond that. There's still a lot of systemic things that are, are kind of holding mm-hmm. society mm-hmm. back, and policy needs to change and policy needs to adapt. But what other things are you seeing that are kind of are are holding back this whole kind of I don't want to call it a a re re sort of a reevaluation or or a revolution of sorts? What's holding the system back from getting to the place where we need to get to? Systems are made of people, so we can change all the Mm. policies that we want to. And some policies have policies have been changed. There's been amendments to the constitution, and some things have been overturned and corrected through the Civil Rights Act in in the mid 60s. But what hasn't changed again are the people. People make up the systems. And so we fundamentally, you know, as humans, 
The saying goes that facts sell, but stories tell. No, facts tell. I said that wrong. Facts tell. Stories tell. There we go. So we pass on these stories. And so from generation to generation, we've passed on misinformation about people Mm. groups. And then we keep these stories going. You perpetuate. Yeah. And so then we justify a lot of the inequalities and disproportionalities through what I lies for the most part. So we just lying yeah but but their belief systems and their attitudes really that that are underpinning these fears that are are holding it's what's kind of it's holding us back is those belief systems and in ireland we had we had our own problems obviously with northern ireland in terms of religion and the catholic and the protestant thing in northern ireland and i'm from a generation where it's not a thing for us it's still a thing but for a lot of my peers and my, my generation it's less of a big thing. I, I'm married to somebody from Belfast who's of a different religion and it's not, you know, it hasn't got the, the credence that it had at one time, say in the seventies, where for us to have a mixed marriage would be unheard of in many cases. So it's, it's quite similar. So I can definitely resonate to, to what you're talking about here, but in your, in your talk anyway, like with, with the TEDx talk, which as I said, you'll watch it numerous times at this stage, there was a couple of things that I really, really resonated with, and it was educating children around race. And as I mentioned to you before, I'm white, I'm man, I'm European, and I've got, I'm completely privileged in those things. And my, my daughter, blonde hair, blue eyes, and we lived in Australia. And at that time, Australia is a wonderfully diverse country, but it could be more diverse if I'm truth be known. But Ireland is, is less so. And there's primarily white people around here. And there's been instances where my my daughter has seen a black person walking along the street and they're just like stops and stares. Because <laughs> it's and I've had to really think about how to approach those conversations. Mm-hmm. So what do you say to people in my situation on how we can actually educate? Right. So a perspective is are so important. So if you live in, I'm going to call it like any kind of a bubble where most of the people in your bubble yeah. look like you or look the same, then you would want to provide windows, right, to the outside world. Dr. Bishop, I hope I'm saying that right, says that children's literature, through children's literature, we can have um, mirrors and windows. So mirrors to see yourself in the children's literature, but also windows to see out. It's so important that children understand that, yeah, the world is multi-hued and multi-faceted and multi-cultured so that, you know, they don't kind of grow up centering themselves and Mm. thinking that the world revolves around them and their culture. And we just, even in our, in the own micro culture of our families, we would want that. We we, we wouldn't want to raise a child that thinks the whole family and the whole community revolves around you. And so we can just apply that same mindset or thought pattern to the world. And yeah, you want to, through books, through travel, through anything that you can manipulate and organize, expose children to the beautiful differences of of people who don't look like you, or maybe who don't live exactly like you. And also because what we've done in, in the last hundreds of years, you know, after the yeah. you know European expansion, is we have then 
yes, we see that people, there are people that exist in all these places that look different than us. But then we had, what we did was we gave meaning. And so we have to, children need to understand that the meaning place valuable meanings on people who look different and live differently than they do. Like just because someone looks differently and lives differently doesn't mean that they are less human or less valuable mm. and have less to offer. Yeah. And those come through very explicit conversations. And so for example, with yeah. our family, we have a multi-ethnic family. We don't, we currently live in a neighborhood and attend a school where we don't see a lot of hijabs, like women or girls wearing hijabs. So guess what? We yeah. got bought a bunch of books, bunch of children's books yeah. and read the book and have the conversations. And so now it's normalized for mental Yeah. And that's a big thing. One of the other pieces was the position of power and its association mm -hmm. with race. And I was like completely blown away. Your talk at that point was really good. Like where children, you said at the age of five, can associate power and race and they're, they can have the association. Mm -hmm. Now, where, where does this come from? Where do you believe that that role of power and is it being passed down from previous generations or is it coming from media right. or how is that being translated to children as, as young as five? Right. So children are observing. Well, as humans, we're meaning making machines. So we know mm -hmm. patterns, right? So we notice yeah. that potentially, depending on where you live, okay, well, all of the superheroes are white. Exactly. All of the, all of the popes are white. I don't know. All of yeah. the doctors are white and the teachers are white. So, and then you may notice, well, all of the people who are sweeping the street or who are, of course. Yeah, are uh, of color or brown. Um, so even, you know, yeah, my children had, have asked, like, how come everybody who is working, doing some work on our house, so we, our house was being renovated and doing work in our lawn because our lawn was being renovated. They're all brown. So yeah, so they are, are noticing it. And if you're not having this, these explicit conversations to interrupt some of the messaging, then yeah, then that they, they can then simply, yeah, reproduce and repro and perpetuate the message yeah. that they have observed. Yeah, I can see it. I know my, my little girl's name is Freya and like I see Freya watching netflix mm -hmm. and she's like at that age now we're watching my little pony and all these kind of fun things that their theme tunes stick in my head for months yeah. but all of those shows mm -hmm. are really perpetuating that stereotype they're they're all white as you said mm -hmm. so there's a huge role there to play for the content creators and ensuring that they've got a a diverse and inclusive I guess, machine that's, that's working to fix these things right. in the same way as like a lot of the Disney movies, mm -hmm. when you look back at them, they're, they're actually perpetuating that stereotype of yeah. power amongst man and woman. And as, I, as I'm reading these stories, I'm like, Oh, I don't really agree with this. Right. So, and it's it really taking these books away. <laughs> yeah. Or change it or have a conversation. Yeah. And you have to have this conversation and that's what we were doing with our children having a conversation about what they're seeing so that they're not just these passive consumers, but you use these as opportunities to actually give them and sharpen their analytical skills. Like, well, their minds. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It's just something that we've, we've become a lot more attuned to since we've become parents that, you know, as we were growing up, we, we just didn't really question it. We just, we just, you know, as you said, you were passive and you were sitting there and you, you were 
just just watching and taking it all in but it's definitely informed mm-hmm. our mental models and our and our mindsets mm-hmm. but yeah it's a big thing there's a few other things i wanted to chat to you about and i ignorant about some of these topics and one of them is around the american public pool system <laughs> right yeah. so yeah. can you tell us what you what, what's what's going on with this because you there was an amazing statistic that you threw out in your talk around where there's five times more black children dying in, in public pools. Drowned, right. So drowned, yeah. Yeah. And that was that's a great example of why it's so important to teach context. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, my parents, which I'm not that old, but I am the first generation. Twenty two. <laughs> I'm not that young. <laughs> I'm the first generation to be fully integrated from preschool or kindergarten through 12th grade, right? So my parents grew up, not they're not that old, during Jim Crow. And I have to make that point because people think like Jim Crow and all of the things between the end of slavery and Jim Crow and the civil rights movement, they think that was such a long time ago. It really wasn't. It was just like a generation from me, which means like my grandmother was enslaved. So it wasn't really that long ago. Mm. However. But yes, but so up until that time, up until, let's see, it would have been, I don't know, actually, so recently, no, yeah, African-Americans were prohibited from swimming in public pools with white people. So, and this was a way of like, I don't have time to explain the psychology behind that madness, because somehow there was prohibit intermingling and intermixing of the quote unquote races and to keep the white race pure. So I think it was just swimming pools or the only way that they figured that people would get together. Anyway, so a lot of public pools were even shut down in black neighborhoods. So you have generations of people who didn't have access to water. So for example, yeah, my mom doesn't mm-hmm. swim. So if you, if you didn't have access to water, then you're less likely to then, you don't know how to teach your children to swim. You're less likely to make swimming and going to the pool a central part of your life. Mm. So you, you cut you cut off or put or created, I should say, a deficit for the current generation where swimming and going to a pool is just not a natural thing. It's just not a part of growing up. And so now, fortunately for me, I my parents rectified that. Like they said, we're getting a pool. So we had a pool in our yard. So we you grew up swimming. So yeah. children know. So going to the pool is the normal for us. However, yeah, that's why there's this, the number is so large hmm. because of his historical policies. Now you have generation a, a generation of African-American children who don't know how to swim because their parents didn't have the opportunity to learn how to swim. Hmm. Grandparents didn't have the opportunity to learn it's lingering from generation to generation it's it's one generation away effectively or more and it's having a big so those figures of you know times five how how recent are those well no like it that still is now it's pretty recent wow it's incredible yeah and you were mentioning about people were assuming that because black people were inferior swimmers yeah yes and, and, and that's how you, that was a, an example of how you have to, why it's necessary to um, know these things so you can have the conversation and have the conversations with your friends. Hmm. Because when the little girl, in this case, the little white girl read the sign, she didn't know all of that history and context. So she interpreted the sign that said, 
African-American children are five times more likely to drown than white kids. So she thought, wait, is this sign telling me that black kids just can't swim? Like, what's wrong? Like, are they hmm. swimmers? And like, nope, that's not. This is parents didn't have access to a pool. Grandparents didn't have access to a pool. So they're less likely to have been immersed in swimming culture. And so the parent in that case knew that. And so she could, in the moment, help her child. Because otherwise, yeah, children see, again, the predominance of and the centering of white and white characters and white people. So then they internalize, oh, white must be better. You know, white must be stronger and smarter. Which reaffirms those power, those power systems that we were talking about earlier. And it just reaffirms that. So it's, yeah, and it's... it also goes the other way because I had a white child. I get to work a lot in classrooms and I had a white boy ask me, did he, did you have to look like me? So did you have to have be brown like me in order to jump really high? And I was confused. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> you know? And then he explained that Michael Jordan was brown like me, had the same amount of melanin as me. And he said, and Michael Jordan can jump really high. So in that moment, yeah, was he thinking, well, I, as a white kid, will never be able to jump that high because I'm not brown. Do you see? I don't know. It, it, yeah. the way. And so that's that whole notion of, you know, Black athletic superiority, which is false, but it only, mm. it makes sense in a white superiority framework because you have to have some reason, like, like if white is superior, then in your brain, you have to figure out, well, how come in this case, we have all of these athletes that are professional and they are of color. So then you're, then you go, oh, there must be something special about them. Yeah. But we're all human. So if you had the people who have access to whatever sport or whatever field, if you have access to it, you have opportunity to practice, you have resources, then you probably will do well at it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There's this privilege of play. There was, there was definitely, there was, there's bits where your children, when you had your first child and, you know, Nathan being white and you being black. And there was a moment in your talk where you, your, your child described to one of their kindergarten teachers, I think it might've been that your daddy was uh, light brown Mm -hmm. and you were dark brown. Mm -hmm. Now that there like showed a really, a deep sense of empathy and a deep sense of awareness Mm -hmm. but what are you doing to instill that like you know at home i'm putting you at at the center of kind of what we should all be looking at how are you maintaining that like how are you perpetuating that whole kind of belief system for for your children to to not just assume that power play is dictating their their role in society oh that's so good well well first of all yes think about this most people cannot have, can only talk about their phenotype or their skin color mm. or their hair texture yeah. in the frame of a racial construct, which to me is pretty sad. Yeah. Right. So in our home, because we are a multi-ethnic family, we wanted to be able to talk about what we look like and, you know, the traits that we, the physical traits anyway, that we passed on to our children and how they blended together. And we're these five different skin tones and we have five different textures of hair. So we want to be able to talk about that essentially as a part of who we are, not just in the context of a social 
identity that is imposed on us, right? A social identity created hundreds of years ago and then has been, you know, reworked and reformed <laughs> throughout the years. And when we walk out the door, it's like, okay, now we're not the berry patch, you know, mommy, daddy, and three girls. When we walk out the door, now we're, oh, a black woman and a white man, and the children are whatever, biracial, mixed. We say multi-ethnic. So hmm. we, so then we just have always had very explicit conversations about it. So in that moment, even when our daughter gave us the framework for brown, daddy is light brown, mommy is dark brown, I'm medium brown, she said. Oh my God. Yeah. Yes. Because we all have melanin and this yeah. explained why daddy had less melanin and why mommy has more melanin and now why she has medium melanin. And we stuck to the, that to that, like to talk about what we look like, we can move in the freedom of that beyond a racial construct. So we move in the liberty of that and the beauty of that. And then in a different conversation, yes, then we talk about how race, racial categories were created and why racial categories are created and the power or the disempowerment that was attached to um, racial categories. So they're, so they can be very conscious of the different narratives and the different influences that are trying to shape them. And our goal was really to empower them to, to be able to say who they are more than being told who they are, you know, and I, and identity formation is complex anyway, and it's always a journey. Yeah. Uh, but then, you know, when you have, you have culture, you have ethnicity, you have nationality, religion, racial categories, all of these things. And so we want them to be aware that these are all these things. They're not necessarily objective. They're all playing around and moving around and forming and shaping and impacting. And then there's also, but we also want you to be able to see like you uniquely, you, you interacting, like you're not powerless to, to say who you are, but yes, they, we have very explicit conversations. We have taught history of race, not just history, like, well, there was slavery and then there was a civil rights movement. No, we taught like the history of race and the racial construct. And we have very explicit conversations. Like when they say something about school, like one of our children said, well, why is Brayden the only brown boy in my class? Like, that's not fair. There are four brown girls, but only one brown boy. We need more brown boys in the class for Brayden. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, okay, well, let me explain to you about neighborhoods and how our schools function and who. And I said, so if we move to a different part of town, and then if we did that, then there would be more brown boys in the class because there's more brown people in this part of town. In that area. You see, so it's just give, constantly allowing them to see all of these different dynamics at work and yeah. allowing them to ask questions and allowing them and making it normal, making it a normal conversation. It's, not, it's never a scary, like, let's sit down. So you've been re really explicit about explaining the, the systems that are at play yeah. and being honest and acknowledging their, their kind of failings as well. Yeah. I think that that's something that I actively try and do to a three and a half year old <laughs> as, as I'm doing at the moment. <laughs> I know Freya's pretty young, but I, I have broached subject with her, like, which I'm going to continue to do. Talk to me a little bit more around, you know, your plans for the future. Like Brownicity, it's a great, great name for a business. Thank you. 
Um, but what are your plans for the next couple of years to to work with Brownicity, and what, what where do you see the opportunities lie? I guess like in in the America that we find ourselves in now at the moment, there's there's hopefully lots of change going to hopefully come. I keep on saying hopefully, yeah. but where where do you see all of this kind of landing? Yeah. And where do you see the opportunities for Brownicity to to kind of intersect with those opportunities? Right. Well, currently, like I said, there is a knowledge deficit, a learning deficit. And what has happened in the last four or five years? (laughs) (laughs) We're not naming anything in this time frame of who might be responsible, but (laughs) Trump. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Well, so the what has that has caused it. Yeah. People's eyes to be opened. People have been stirred. Like before there was, I like this one person said, there's the mighty middle. You know, there's this people who are kind of like, well, you know, the activists are handling this or Lucretia and Brownicity are handling this. So I'll just talk about blue jeans and fashion and whatever. But So many people are, you know, just like you who have a microphone, you know, who have a table, who have resources, are turning their attention and coming to this culture of learning and understanding like, hey, I can be a part of this collective shift if I participate and bring along. I had one author podcaster, man, she has a great I think loyal following. And she said, hey, follow Lucretia, follow Brownicity. I mean, in my, <laughs> I was like, no, don't follow. But anyway, it just, <laughs> like, yeah. so, but I took that. I'm like, look at all these people who want to learn. And so Brownicity is here for the people who want to learn, but don't know where to start. And so we are, again, very education centered and come and really motivated by love. I, I noticed there's lots of oppor- like lots of ways that people can kind of come to an awareness. But I do know there are a lot of people who are just overwhelmed by trying to figure this out on their own. And so we are here for the mm. people who, yeah, you need a space that has been curated for you, you know, by educators, mm. um, people who understand how learning happens and people who need to be built. Like I love to say, like we build people. And so we want to build people, give them the capacity, give them a foundation so that they can t- continue to grow. So we work with schools. Currently, I'm a consultant for a school, for a couple of schools. So, but we work with schools. Yeah. We do courses for companies, churches. So anybody who needs that education, we are here for you. And what I'm hoping is that soon, but I don't know, soon we'll get to a place where we don't need a brownicity because we, you know, we understand this. Like we have this core understanding of how race, the race construct has narrated our identities in, in ways that hurt humanity. Hmm. So I don't know. I, I hope we get there. Uh, it'd be nice to work myself out of a job. <laughs> I know. Well, look, it's definitely needed. Like there's, we're, we're always talking about on the podcast, the role of diversity and inclusion within organizations. And it's, it, there's a huge opportunity there to take those organizations on the journey and, you know, educate and show by doing, because like, as you can see, the systems that are out there at the moment and they perpetuate a lot of these things have been created by people. Right. And a lot of the times I like to give fairness a go as often as possible. And they've been done 
most of the time just by pure ignorance and just by just continuing to to you know go with the flow and just create what they're told to create right. do their jobs and become more aware of these systems that are at play and that's i guess what i'm hoping to mm-hmm. highlight with this podcast is really start asking questions and start connecting in with other people who can bring other perspectives and additional perspectives to your to your research and your organization and how you create services as well mm-hmm. so that's really like what, what i love to see and obviously you know lucretia if there's ever anything that we can do on this is hcd as regards highlighting your work mm-hmm. just take this as an extension of your business you know i really truly believe in what you're doing and it's it's been fantastic to connect with you Lucretia, if people want to reach out to you and follow you, like I'm obviously going to throw links to it in the show notes anyway. What's your favorite way to you know, for people to make contact with you? Oh, connect at brownicity.com. Or you can go okay. brownicity.com and click on connect. That's the best way. <laughs> okay. We'll do it through that. You're on Twitter as well, I think, aren't you? Yeah. You know what? Um, Instagram is my jam. I mostly hang out on Instagram, but yes, I'm on Twitter and Facebook, but I mostly hang out on Instagram. Okay, brilliant. Well, we'll throw links to all of those in the show notes and people can connect you there. Thank you so much for your time. Wow. I'm so honored to be here. I so appreciate that you value our work and value my work. That means so much to me. Thank you so much. Anytime. And you're welcome back to come on at any time as well, Lucretia. So there you have it. That's all for this episode of Bringing Design Closer. If you like this episode, feel free to visit thisishcd.com where you can access our back catalogue of over 100 episodes with episodes related to service design, product management, design research, and much, much more. If you're interested in design and innovation training, feel free to check out our business, thisisdoing.com, where you can join online classrooms and learn from the world's best design and innovation leaders. Join the This Is HCD newsletter where you receive updates from the network. And also, if you're interested, apply to join the Slack community on thisishcd.com. Stay safe and until next time, take care.